The fuel in your car, the raw materials in your computer or mobile phone, the metals in your household appliances, the wheat in your toast or the beans on top of it. How did they get from the earth and the fields, from the four corners of the world to you? Now, near the top of that chain lies the commodity traders, the companies, some of them massive and hugely profitable, which buy the raw materials and sell them on down the supply chain. In this episode of Bridges to the Future, we'll look at the world of the commodity traders and how it's changed, including the way some companies have made a killing from COVID. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm joined by Javier Blas and Jack Farchi, authors of a fascinating, sometimes hair-raising new book, The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. I have to say, you two, when I finished this book, I thought, I'm so glad I understand this, but I kind of wish I'd understood it so long ago, partly for the reason I've just given, which is, you know, I am implicated in this trade. So let's start, Javier, with the most basic question. What do commodity traders do? Well, Matthew, I think that you put it very well on your introduction. They buy and sell the natural resources that we consume. They are the middleman of the global economy. They go to where those commodities are produced that often are not the areas of consumption, whether it's that oil in the Middle East or copper and cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo or wheat in the fields of Russia. And they bring it to the consumption centers to where we, the consumers are, whether it's here in in Europe, the United States, or increasingly in Asia, in China in particular. They act as a global middleman linking producers and consumers, providing credit. One academic put it in a way that I really like it. They are the, the visible manifestation of the famous invisible hand of Adam Smith. And they are as you say often in the book they are hidden away from view uh, you know a lot of the time and you know when we as consumers we buy things we buy them from you know retail large retailers most of the time who care about their image and will reassure us often about their ethical intentions and when we do come across the idea of people who buy this stuff it's often presented in a very kind of sanitized way. I remember when I was a kid, there used to be a set of adverts about the man from Del Monte, you know, who was presented as this kind of paternalistic guy who went around buying fruit on behalf of the company. And then that was the fruit that you then got in your tins at home. So we don't really understand the business. And in as much as we do, we're given a very sanitized version of it, aren't we? Yeah, you are right. I mean, these are not household names. There are companies that very few people unless they are deeply involved in the business of natural resources, will recognize. There is Glencore, which is the world's largest metals trader. There is Beetle, which is the world's largest oil trader. And you have this big American company called Cargill, which is the world's largest agricultural trading house. Below them, there are many others which don't have a household name because they don't sell to us directly. They act as the middleman in between the producer and the consumer. But I don't mean by the consumer us. We mean consumers like companies like Tesco or car producers like Volkswagen. Those are the kind of consumers that buy the commodities from these intermediaries. And they are, most of them are privately owned companies. So they have to say very little about themselves, including often not releasing any financial information. 
and for historical reasons have seen as operating in the shadows, as keeping everything secret, as a competitive advantage. So to this day, they remain quite secretive. A lot of the book is about the evolution of the industry, its growth, its heyday, its cycles it's been through and where it is now. But Jack, take me to kind of you in a room of commodity traders out having a meal with them there, giving you information or whatever. Tell us a bit about the kind of character of these people. They're overwhelmingly men at the top of the industry. They're incredibly rich. They're very kind of forceful people, aren't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a varied industry with different people in it. But if there's a thread that runs through it, it's, first of all, they're manically hardworking, really driven. And, you know, they put the business of commodity trading above, I would say, in many cases, pretty much everything else in their lives. You know, these are the kind of people who will be, apart from during COVID, on a plane 200, 250 days of the year always traveling, always going out and trying to do more deals and make more money. And the other thread that links them, I would say the vast majority of the of the commodity traders who we have met and interviewed, is they're extremely charming. This is a business that relies on personal relationships. As Javier was saying, you know, they're linking the producers and the consumers. There's not really very much that they do other than sometimes lend money and transport commodities around the world, which is not exactly a terribly complex thing. And so how do you make sure that you're the person who gets that business? Well, you have a, a huge network of relationships. You make sure that you're the first person to get the call when the producer wants to sell something or the consumer wants to buy. And so it's a business that relies on relationships. And so for the most part, they are extremely charming individuals with you know a real kind of personal magnetism that is also linked to that relentless drive. They're kind of Iron Rand kind of capitalists, aren't they? As you say, they're kind of super, I will refer to them mainly as men because they overwhelmingly are, but they're kind of supermen characters. They put themselves often in very kind of dangerous situations. You know, one of them ends up in prison, for example, I think in the Ivory Coast for several months and isn't let out until his company pays lots of money. So they are people who live at the edge a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a reality of the world that commodities, you know, are produced all over the world, including in lots of difficult countries. And one of the skills and the the ways in which commodity traders have set themselves apart from other companies is in their willingness to go and do business in all kinds of countries, you know, be that the Soviet Union as it was collapsing and the new countries of the now former Soviet Union, you know, when the legal environment was completely unclear, or be it going into Libya in the middle of a civil war where, you know, most companies and most individuals would be pretty wary of going and flying into Libya for starters and then putting their money to work there and investing as well. And yet the commodity traders did that. That's exactly what VTOL did. They went and lent money to Libya's rebels in the middle of a civil war and almost certainly changed the course of the war. Yeah, In the end, I kind of thought they were like a kind of meld of the psychology of an investment banker on the one hand and a mercenary soldier on the other. That's how I ended up thinking about them, this kind of single-minded focus on money, but also this kind of buccaneering spirit. Now, nobody probably exemplifies more the kind of strengths and the dark side of this world than Mark Rich, who's a character who crops up a lot, particularly in the kind of first two thirds of the book. So let's just draw a little pen picture of, you know, one of the few names that ordinary people may have heard of in this sector, partly because of the way in which he got wound up in the end of the Clinton administration, the pardon that he got. But have you just, I mean, obviously there's been books written about Mark Rich, but have you just tell us a bit about Mark Rich and in some ways how he exemplifies this world? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you are right. I mean, he's the public persona of the commodity trader. I mean, you were to cast a character on a Hollywood movie about a commodity trader, probably you would like that it looked like Mark Rich. It's the kind of hardworking mentality, adventurous drive to go anywhere, including where it was not really legal for him to do so, and also a, a fascination for money and making lots of it. He grew up in America, started working his career as a commodity trader from the very beginning in, in a company called Philip Brothers. And this is the early days of the commodity market when it's really been transformed, the 1960s and then the early 1970s. And he's a, about the, the first commodity traders. He sees an opportunity to deal in oil. Until then, the oil market was controlled by those companies that we we call the Seven Sisters, the big companies that are today, Exxon and Chevron and Shell and BP, etc. And he sees an opportunity during the oil crisis of the 1970s to start trading oil. He does that and is very successful, makes a lot of money at the time. But he has a big disagreement with his bosses at, at Philip Brothers. And at one point, he's asking for more money. He wants a larger bonus and more salary. They say no. And he used resolute, leads a very happy and a very successful life of a commodity trader with a very respected company. Philip Brothers was the largest commodity trader at that point. And he goes and he starts his own company who calls Marrich & Co., that ego of Marrich always there, naming the company with his own name. And, and he starts to do exactly the same thing that he was doing at Philip Brothers, but a larger scale trading, a lot of oil, trading metals. And in the late 70s, Marrich and Co., the company became extraordinarily profitable. It made about a billion dollars in profit. With At that point, it will have put the company among the 10 largest American companies by profit. But soon the problems start. He is trading on Iranian oil. The regime in Tehran has captured a bunch of American diplomats and they are hostages in the hostage crisis in the 1980s. And he's also buying uh, oil in the U.S. in some ways that the, the authorities think that he's avoiding paying taxes. So at one point, he gets indicted both for trading with Iran and for tax evasion. And the prosecutor in the case is a, is a Rudolf Giuliani, which obviously play a big role on the Trump administration also recently. Marrich flees the United States, goes into Switzerland, where he stayed for many years, protected by the Swiss authorities, until uh, Bill Clinton, on his very last day at the White House, offered him a pardon and his case is lost. So that is Marrich. And the company that Marrich founded later on changed his name. It became Glencore. And today is on the London stock market as a publicly listed company and probably on the pension fund pods of all of us. So that is Marrich. And, and really, probably, if he was not the godfather of the whole commodity trading industry, he was really the person which most people will associate and almost call a synonym of the commodity traders. There's so many things that are fascinating about him. But the, the thing that really hit me is that I have an image of big business, which is that, you know, there may be rogue people in big businesses. There may be things that they do at the very edges of the business, which are slightly dodgy or problematic. 
but he was doing this stuff. He was doing the deals. He was doing the dodgy stuff. And he was the most important person in commodity trading in the world. This wasn't some kind of rogue at the edge of the organization. This was the man himself who was doing this stuff. And that speaks to the fact that in the end, this enormous part of the economy, which, as I said at the beginning, influences our lives enormously, the power is held by a relatively small number of people. And those people themselves are the kind of primary actors. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, he have no qualms whatsoever one day dealing with a government on the far left of the spectrum and the following day dealing with a dictator in a right-wing country. He was at ease dealing with Cuba or Fidel Castro as he was dealing with Pinochet in Chile. He is also the personification of how the commodity traders started to have also a big political impact, not because they were seeking to have that political impact, but because as they were dealing in natural resources that they were important for particular countries, they became very important for those countries. I mean, think about South Africa during apartheid, where they didn't have access to oil, and it was Matt Rich who will send his oil tankers to supply the regime, effectively, probably postponing the end of apartheid by years, if not decades. Yeah, no, and I think this is more than anything else, the thing that's driven home to me is the incredible significance of these people in world events. And they're not elected, of course, they're largely unaccountable. As you say in the book, most of these companies are private, we don't know what they're doing, but they they have been massively influential in world events. And I want just very quickly now to, to just go through three or four countries and the stories of the role the commodity traders have played in those countries. So you've just started one, one, have you? But I'll I'll pass over to you, Jack, to tell the kind of fuller story, which is the role the commodity traders played in making sure that South Africa was able to function economically, even though ostensibly the whole world, or nearly the whole world, was boycotting the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the commodity traders, and particularly Mark Rich, but not only Mark Rich, in fact, many of the largest commodity traders and indeed some large oil companies continued supplying South Africa with oil even after there was a what was called a voluntary embargo imposed on the apartheid government by the UN. And in many cases, this involved supplying South Africa with oil from Iran, which was also politically sensitive, given the Iranian revolution of 1979. And the commodity traders more or less went into the shadows. So there are numerous stories documented by South African activists of the time of traders who covered up the names of their ships or painted over the names of their ships. They'd unload in secret, essentially trying to disguise the fact that they were delivering oil to apartheid South Africa. So they knew that they were doing something that the world frowned upon, but they did it anyway. And there's some very candid comments from South African apartheid era politicians saying that without the oil that they got from the commodity traders, the economy would have suffered massively and the regime probably wouldn't have survived. And of course, they're entirely unapologetic about this, Jack, as well, aren't they? I mean, there's a few quotes in the book from people saying, well, you know, the South Africans wanted oil, we could get it for them. What's the issue? Well, Mark Rich was fascinating on this because, you know, he said there's a fascinating book, which is his kind of semi-authorised biography, which the author, Daniel Ammon, did a series of interviews with him before he died. And he asked him about his dealings with apartheid South Africa. And he said, oh, I was really against apartheid. I thought it was terrible. And then in the next breath, he said, but of course, we do whatever we can that's legal. And to South Africa wanted to buy oil. And so we sold them oil. And that was that. And, you know, that was the kind of the division in which he saw the world between the business that he was doing, and he said it was legal, versus the morality, which was kind of seen somehow as separate to that. So yeah, they got themselves into all kinds of moral contortions. 
So South Africa illustrates the role the commodity traders can play and the money they can make from circumventing the rules and the regulations and from hiding away the, the, the way in which these commodities flow. Let, let's turn to Jamaica, because I thought what was interesting about the Jamaican example was the role of finance in all of this. So the way in which these traders often work by lending money to people in order that they can buy things or buying things at a point when the market is very weak in order that they can hold on to them and sell them when they're better off. Now, the fascinating element about Jamaica, Jack, is is the longevity of the relationship. I think Jamaica is still part of some of these contracts. Yeah, it is. Well, in fact, so it was Mark Rich who came and pioneered the relationship with Jamaica in the early 1980s. And Glencore, the successor company, was usurped only in 2012, which caused great consternation for the Glencore traders of, of the day and caused, we're reliably informed, the CEO of Glencore to fly into Jamaica to try and repair the loss. But no, yeah, I mean, Jamaica is an example of how commodity traders really discovered the idea of emerging markets long before the rest of the finance world had even woken up to the concept and it didn't even have a name in finance, emerging markets. There's a wonderful quote from, I think, a newspaper of the day of someone saying, you know, if we wanted to try and lend to Jamaica in my company, you'd have been thrown out of the window. Nobody would even dreamt of lending to Jamaica. And yet along came Mark Rich and did exactly that. So, you know, the story of Jamaica is one, it was one of the world's largest producers of bauxite and alumina, which are the raw materials from which aluminium is made. And then in the 1980s, with high oil prices, the economy was in a terrible state. They needed you know, a whole series of programs from the IMF. And they were very short of money. And along came Mark Rich, which was trading with them because it was buying bauxite and alumina that were produced by Jamaica. And over a series of deals, lent the government a huge amount of money and did all kinds of other things to ingratiate itself with the Jamaican government, like paying for the bobsleigh team to go to the Winter Olympics, as was immortalized in the film Cool Runnings. And that relationship lasted for 30 years and, and made, made Mark Rich and later Glencore a huge amount of money. And at the heart of that was that the Jamaicans had to agree to sell their raw materials at a low price because they desperately needed the money, but also because the market then was slack. And then Mark Rich, Glencore, able to, they've got that supply as the price rises, leading to a substantial locked-in profit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the model of the traders is often make money at moments of really extreme price volatility. So when prices collapse or when they surge, and in order to do that, they want to have a whole network of relationships and long-term contracts with producers. And so, you know, if you can secure a long-term contract with Jamaica, one of the world's largest in, the, in those days, bauxite and aluminum producers, by lending them money when they really need money, then when, as happened in the late 1980s and 1988, the aluminium price spikes, increased fourfold, then they're in a fantastic position because they've locked in that supply and they can print money, essentially. And then Jamaicans then are seeing their raw material raising so much less for them than it could if they were in control of it themselves, which, of course, is one of the reasons why one of the things that we saw in the kind of 80s and 90s, I guess, was countries taking control, nationalising their mines or their oil supply or whatever, because they were trying to get hold of some of this value added themselves. Now, let's go to another example, which is Russia has become a word now we associate with a country which is hostile to us. Vladimir Putin we see as, as, as being a kind of rogue figure. But again, as your book shows, 
Russia's capacity to survive moments of crisis and indeed Putin's survival, Putin's rise. Again, the commodity traders are important to that. And that goes back, of course, to them exploiting the chaos of the collapse of the Soviet empire. Jack? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think when we were tracing the history of the commodity trading industry, one of the moments that was probably, you know, one of the three or four crucial moments in the history of the last 50 years that really helped the commodity traders take off both in terms of making money and also in their political significance was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And essentially, you had a system, you know, you had the whole system breaking down almost overnight. The Soviet Union was the world's largest oil producer at that time, and one of the largest producers of most metals and of grain. And so it was a huge prize for the commodity traders. And then overnight, this system whereby a few agencies, state agencies in Moscow had determined the entire foreign trade of the Soviet Union suddenly ceased to exist. And so the commodity traders stepped in and they had to do things that previously would have been organized by Gosplan, things like organizing for a raw material that produced in Kazakhstan to be, or in what then became Kazakhstan, to be delivered to what then was Russia, and also importing exports from the rest of the world. And the prize that they got for doing that was being able to buy commodities at a ridiculously cheap price. So, you know, we talked to traders who were paying a quarter of the global market price for the commodities that they were buying in Russia. And of course, that meant absolutely enormous profits. It also meant that they had a huge political influence because, you know, as we know, the businessmen who emerged from that period in Russia, immensely wealthy, became the oligarchs and had a lot of political influence in the development of Russia and indeed beyond. And it was the commodity traders who were first dealing with them and who were first, you know, deciding who to deal with and who not to deal with. And that determined, I mean, as some of them told us in the book, that determined who became oligarchs. And a lot of this stuff, I was surprised at almost how explicit, you know, it is. Putin giving an award, I think, to a kind of medal to commodity trader because of the deal that was done, which enabled him to bring in vital finance in relation to the oil industry. There's a kind of knowingness, isn't there, between political leaders, particularly some of our more kind of dodgy political leaders and these commodity traders. They are very at home with each other, it seems to me, as two tribes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's bringing it right up to the present day. I mean, that was in 2017, I think, that Putin was giving Ivan Glassenberg, who's the, the current CEO of Glencore, a medal for the deal that he did to, to help buy a stake in, in Rosneft, in the state oil company. But yes, you know, one of the reasons why commodity traders are so important, we think, in politics and in economics, is that commodities are money and money is power. And it's pretty clear that a leader like Putin also recognises that. And so there's a kind of mutual understanding there that they speak the same language. And speaking of these relationships between highly problematic politicians and commodity traders, perhaps Javier, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is kind of one of the most startling examples of this, where really that dictatorship and the experiences of that country, it simply can't be understood without understanding the role of commodity traders in that regime and in the nature of that country's economy. Yeah, absolutely. The DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo in the Central of Africa, they rely on, on mineral exports, particularly of copper and cobalt, it's a very mineral-rich country, and it has been the commodity traders and, and some people connected also to the commodity traders who have been financing the country, have been investing heavily into new mines, rehabilitating old mines that they were exploited in colonial times, and effectively linking 
the forests of Congo with the global financial centers. And you can see the money flowing from the center of Africa into the profits of the commodity traders in, in Switzerland. And then with the help of, of some notorious middleman who act as the middleman of, of the commodity traders, in some cases involved into bribery, the, the United States have put sanctions on some of them, Dan Gadler particularly, accusing him of bribing Congolese officials to control the mineral exports, something that he strongly denies, but the accusation is there from the from the US government. So yes, the commodity traders have really played a key role in the country and effectively probably shaped his his political history over the last few years in the particular way that they wanted. And there's no hiding a lot of this, the role that corruption plays, the role that backhanders play. And We've talked about South Africa, Jamaica, Russia, Congo, but one of the countries that features a lot in this book is Switzerland. And the remarkable fact that until quite recently, you were able to declare as a kind of tax expense, you could get tax back on the money that you'd spent basically on bribing people, which is is a remarkable thing. So the use of bribery was just part of how to oil the wheels of this industry for many years, wasn't it, Harry? Yeah, it was seen as a perfectly valid uh, business expense if you were bribing another business in, in a foreign country, a uh, businessman that was completely fair game. And as you said, a Swiss company was able to deduct that from his tax base because the expense was seen as a as another expense, like it will be opening an office in a foreign country or, or spending money traveling. And yes, it's quite remarkable how slow Switzerland has been until very recently in really monitoring this industry and what's going on. And the main problem is that while the industry has cleaned its act, and obviously those commissions are not nearly as normal as they used to be, there are still cases where commodity trading houses have recognized publicly that they pay bribes in some cases as recently as only a few months ago. Vitol recently settled with U.S. prosecutors a case involving bribery in Latin America, confessing that he paid bribes to officials in Ecuador in Latin America as recently as July 2020. I want to turn in a moment to this question of kind of the future of the industry and whether it can ever be truly kind of clean. But just before we do that, let's talk also about one other country, which is China. And China seems to be significant in the story in two ways. First of all, its growth is associated with the kind of real boom time for the whole industry, the commodity boom of the kind of late 90s and noughties, when really it was almost impossible not to make money given the rise in commodity prices. So China really gives a kind of a huge boost to the industry. But now, of course, interestingly, China is also kind of a key player in commodity trading, partly because it's less constrained by US regulation, which is something which is changing the rest of the industry. So so China's an interesting player here as well, isn't it, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think China is the demand source that has driven a lot of the growth in commodity trading over the past 20 years. You know, to give you an example of one commodity where China has completely transformed the market. In 1990, China consumed the same amount of copper as Italy did. By 2000, it was three times the size of Italy's demand. And by 2017, China was 20 times the size of Italy's demand and a full 50% of the global copper market. And so that's had a huge impact. But it's also the case that you know China has changed. And where it used to be that commodity traders could sell, say, copper to China and make 
lots of money doing so because China just wanted to buy copper and it wasn't paying too much attention to the exact terms on which it was buying and how much money the traders were making by selling it to them. That's changing and China has gone out. I mean, we've seen for many years now China investing in mines, for example, in Africa and Latin America, but also investing in its own trading companies. And it's bought up some foreign commodity trading houses and also built up some domestic businesses into trading houses that are going out and securing Chinese natural resources. And, you know, one of the trends which we've traced as journalists covering the industry and in the book of the last few years in commodity trading is that the US government in various ways through sanctions, for example, has become a much more aggressive policeman of international commodity trade. So, you know, the very obvious example is sanctions on the oil exports of Iran and Venezuela. Now, for a commodity trading company like the ones we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, that's based in Europe or the US and has a whole roster of European and American banks financing it, that simply means that you can't trade Iranian oil, you can't trade Venezuelan oil, end of story. If you do and you're caught, then it's game over, your business is over. If you're a Chinese company and you're not reliant on the Western financial system and maybe you know you don't have so much need to transact in dollars, then potentially you can. And indeed, there are Chinese companies that have and continue to trade in Iranian oil, for example. So that is one area in which, you know, China has potentially less need to kowtow to the rules that are put in place by the US. And that, in some instances, gives them more flexibility. Yeah, that's really interesting. I thought kind of, in a sense, one of the slightly depressing parts of the story, because at the end, you know, you described the fact that the actions of the US, but also the fact that I think it's Glencore, isn't it, that's gone public and that's opened it up to greater scrutiny, changing public attitudes, even the possibility that some women might get involved in the industry, worries about climate change. These are all things that are changing it. And and I guess ultimately that's for the good. But China is not necessarily going to be playing by those rules. So that was a reason to be more concerned. Just before I ask, I know I'll ask you both to finish by saying what you think to look into the crystal ball and saying what you think the future shape of commodity trading is going to be. But before we do that, even in this world where they're more tightly constrained, the capacity of the commodity traders to see an opportunity, grab it and make shed loads of money remains undimmed. And we saw that, Javier, didn't we, during the COVID crisis? Yes, COVID was a money-making opportunity for the commodity traders. As we were saying earlier, usually the traders thrive when there is a lot of volatility and also when there is a stream situation of the market. That could be when prices are record highs and there is a lot of demand, but the same can happen for a commodity trader when prices are very low and there is no demand whatsoever. And in particular, the oil traders did very well in 2020 during the pandemic. And that's because they were able to store the oil that no one else in the world wanted in March, April, May, the kind of the really dark months of the pandemic. When oil was actually free for a few days. Oil at one point, you actually, you were a producer, you have to pay a consumer to take away the oil from you. And some traders actually bought oil at negative prices, so someone paid them to to buy it. But in general, they were able to buy oil at very, very low rates, and then they rented as much storage as they could get to store that oil for a few months before the prices recovered. When they ran out of storage, they turned oil tankers into floating storage facilities. They will fill up the tanker and then they put them on anchor in a bay somewhere that, you know, it was not very rough on the sea. And then they will stay there. And because 
there is a financial market for oil. What they were able to do was sell forward on that financial market, that oil, effectively locking in the profit. So when they did all of these transactions, immediately they were able to lock in the price. So it meant that they were almost risk-free and they were hugely profitable to the tune that Beetle, that company that mostly operates from London, and few people have known about it, made $3 billion or around $3 billion last year, which is a record high. When I read that story, Javier, I just kind of thought, well, where are the... Where are the global institutions here? Because, you know, as you say, it's absolutely obvious that oil is not going to have a negative price for that long, that the everyone knows, and nobody's argued about, about this, that the, the economy will rebound in time. And, and, and anyway, in many parts of the world, it, it already has rebounded. So you kind of think, well, where are international institutions who are acting at a point like that and saying, well, you know, we'll step in, we'll buy this oil, partly to help the countries that might be suffering, but, but also because speculative profits should not be made on the back of an act of nature like this. Well, yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, at some points in history, the commodity traders are almost acting like a central bank for the commodity markets. They are the the last buyer, the buyer of last resource, and and also uh, in a very similar way to what the Bank of England will do for the financial system. So they were playing the role that they, they have always done, but they are doing it with almost virtual no regulation. Uh, because they operate on the high seas. This is beyond any particular national authority. And generally, regulators have focused on the financial markets and they have left the business of moving the physical commodities, the, the barrels of oil, the actual barrels of oil, the actual tons of metal. They have left that into the hands of these commodity traders who have no oversight, no regulation. And worse, and that was one of the reasons that we wanted to write this book, very few people, including at governments, know about exactly what they do, how they do it, and how profitable it is. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to write the book, so people know about what's going on. Great. Well, we've nearly run out of time, so I'm going to ask you to gaze into the crystal ball. And I'll start with you, Jack. How, how do you think commodity trading is going to evolve over the next few years? Well, I think that the commodity traders are not about to disappear. They will be around probably for as long as human activity continues. There will continue to be commodities and they will continue to need to be transported from one country to another or to be stored in moments of oversupply and supplied in moments of tightness and high prices. And, you know, the example of COVID and what happened last year is is a perfect one of how the commodity traders fulfill a really important economic role. And that's one that's not about to disappear. So I think they'll be around and they'll be making profits for many years to come. I do think that the industry is going to have to change and is changing. I think that oil is going to become, you know, a less important driver of profits, maybe not this year or next year, but at some point in the next 5, 10, 15 years, as the world shifts more to things like electric vehicles, oil demand is going to be under pressure. And that probably means that the commodity traders are going to make less money trading oil. And so I think their future has to has to involve other commodities. And maybe that's going to be things like LNG, liquefied natural gas, where lots of traders are building up their businesses. And maybe it's going to be in electricity, you know, trying to benefit from the growth in demand for electricity as we, you know, shift our home heating onto electric boilers or shift our cars from petrol to electric cars. 
And finally, maybe it's going to involve trading the metals that are necessary for the batteries and electric grids, things like cobalt, lithium and copper. That's the direction that commodity trading is pointing for the future. But I do think uh, they'll be around for many years to come. And Javier, the book kind of ends up in a sense saying that certainly in the West, at least, commodity trading is going to have to become slightly more part of the kind of business mainstream and slightly more concerned with accountability and reputation and demonstrating that it has at least some ethical compass. Do you think that there'll never be another Mark Rich in a sense? Or is it just inherent to commodity trading that every once in a while, wherever the opportunity presents itself, it's going to insert itself in ways which are you know, entrepreneurial, powerful, but always on the edge? I think that we will have a future mark rich. Probably they will be coming from an Asian country where we have seen uh, commodity traders, particularly in China, willing to take a bigger political risk just because they are outside the dollar system. So I think that you are right. I mean, as long as commodity need to be traded, we will see this adventurous spirit still present in the industry. Perhaps we will not have a mark rich in Europe of the United States. That's clear. And the industry, as you say, is changing. I mean, one change that I hope that the industry have is that welcomes more women into it. Today, Wall Street is often seen as, as a portrait of a still that kind of alpha male picture where few women really work in the big Wall Street banks. And when you look at the commodity traders, you, you kind of wonder whether the Wall Street is not really a bastion of, of progressive behavior because there are even fewer women in, in commodity trading than they are in, in banking in Wall Street. So that is a, a change that is starting to happen, but not nearly enough. And there are still some commodity trading companies where their uh, board level or, or senior executive level, there is absolutely not a single woman. And I think that that, that needs to change. And hopefully we'll see that change happening. So maybe it'll be a Martha Rich, not a Mark Rich. Well, look, Javier, Jack, your book, The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources, it's absolutely fascinating. We've only scratched the surface of it today. It's a book which, on the one hand, tells us some really important things about the nature of money and power and our modern economy. But on the other hand, it's just full of the most fascinating stories. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.